0: Here we go in three, two, one. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Mind Jam podcast. And today's guest, she teaches psychology, animal behavior, dog cognition at the Horowitz Dog Cognition Lab at Barnard College, Columbia University. She is a multiple New York Times best-selling author. And today we have her with us, Dr. Alexandra Horowitz. How are you?
1: Hiya. Good to see you guys.
0: You talk a lot about choice and that dogs don't have a lot of choice in their life. And I know Dr. Becker and I talk about this all the time in, in the food aspects of things. Now, we talk a lot about nutrition. We're nutrition junkies. And I remember one day we were doing this like mathematical equation. Dr. Becker, you remember like, how many bowls? Like Some dogs would get 7,100 bowls of the same food from birth to death their whole lives with... Zero choice, right? We choose everything for them. When you set up at nights and you're writing these these pieces upon choice, where does it come from? The inspiration behind all of
1: this? The air I'm breathing comes from a couple of things. One, it comes from living with dogs and cats you know for quite a long time you know they're subject to a lot of scrutiny from me as I'm a professional observer of behavior I've watched them a lot and I'm really interested in how a, a person living with an animal manages a life with them right and mostly it looks like the way we do it is by controlling their life and so over the years observing this, I started getting interested And well, like, how can we play with this? Because I'm interested in the dog's well-being and point of view. And so, like, can they tell me their point of view? Can I can I hear what they want? Can, is, it, or is it just about our convenience or our feeling of control? So, but I do think it's kind of in the air and from different points of view. The more you know about nutrition, the more you're like, well, why am I just being handed this sort of bag of kibble, right? (laughs) Which we all are and told that that's the way to do it. Why don't I investigate what's best for myself and investigate what my dog would like? And I'm interested in giving, giving them a little bit of room to express their desires.
0: You do something very interesting because you're a scientist and you study dog cognition and the olfactory system. And I remember watching TED Talks that you did when it comes to dogs smelling. Tell us a little bit about your lab, but at the same time, when it comes to choice, one of the things that you had said to us when we were interviewing New York was, a lot of people don't give the dogs the choice to smell on these walks. Like, I don't think that they see that they're very important. You know, you use the Grand Canyon example, which was a great example.
1: And I used to say too, it's like, you know, the, driving by the Grand Canyon, and as soon as you like get to the space, like someone jerks your neck away like, let's get going. We got someplace to go. We're on our walk, right? Like that's the phenomenon of most people dealing with their dog on a walk, on a leash, because we can't imagine that it's interesting. Yeah. So I think that is another reason to your question, what got choice in my head. And it was because I started thinking, What's the world like to the dog? It is a world of smells. We all know this, but profoundly different, profoundly differently wrought than our world of sights. Although we can use it as an analogy, as important as seeing outside the window is for me, that's as important as. Smelling what's outside the window is for my dogs. So one of the ways I just in in my first book suggested that people start to explore this is to take dedicated sniff walks, smell walks with their dogs, where instead of just trying to make it quickly around the block, you know, to make good time before you have to get to the office, or just or always just walking your dog for exercise as though your dog's training for some amazing athletic competition some of those walks should be just to let them experience the world through their primary modality, which is smelling. So maybe just let them sniff anytime they want to sniff. You know, they want to sit there at that fire hydrant for three minutes sniffing. All right, it's interesting to them. Like, can't we just give them those three minutes? Next walk, you can go fast and you can go for your run and they can socialize. But right now they're interested in that. And so... And people tried it. A ton of people tried it and they would get back to me and say, you know, it took a little while for me to be patient with the dog because I don't see what they're smelling. I don't see what's so interesting, but I could see that my dog loved it. And I think that's also at the heart of asking people to give their dogs choices is that people are doing the things with their dogs for the most part that they do because they think it's the right way to deal with their dogs. You get the crate or whatever, because someone tells you that's the right way to keep your dog in your house. They don't, they're not going to recreate how we would live with dogs, you know, with every dog that comes into their house. So they take the received wisdom and this is what's been passed down. So when they're given an option, which is like, let your dog do a dog like thing, like smell, they're really excited to try that. And the dogs for the most part, show them that they appreciate that. So I really, I just, I love that. It's very easy to do. You can do more elaborate, you know, smell games with your dogs. And I think I encourage those as well, but that's like this first step to giving your dog good choice and to entering their world a little bit. Realizing that there's this parallel universe of scent that is out there all the time that we're just not noticing that they are attuned to.
0: Well, you, you changed my perception of just watching people now when I walk, like literally if I'm driving in my car, if I'm walking somewhere, I'm like lasered in on that person and I'll watch like the dog walk up to something magical and start smelling and I'll just see the owner like, come on, come on, we got to go. We got to go. Right. I think there's that, there's that perception of, I'm bringing you out to exercise. I need you to exercise. You're not exercising by smelling. I got to be somewhere. And you're delaying us. And I don't think people give a lot of thought to the joy that comes from smelling those treasures, right? Like how much happiness actually has an effect upon lifespan and healthspan of an individual. Right, Dr.
2: Becker? I would go so far to say that I think that Alexandra Sniffari's this concept of allowing dogs to fulfill their innate need, to not only identify their environment, but tap into all those chemo signals that allow for them to be truly dog. I I would almost place that, physical exercise is incredibly important, absolutely. But the emotional needs of dogs coming through the nose is equally as important. First, do a sniffari, and then when the dog has sniffed to his or her heart content, then let's work on cardio. But first, let's, let's first meet the emotional needs of the dog, and then we'll work on the physical. I can't tell you. Hundreds of my clients have said, holy emotional turnaround at home. I have a dog that isn't bugging me and isn't agitated around the house that when we get back from the walk, they actually are calm and they're cellularly fulfilled and they're happier and they're more balanced in the home. Not because they've had more exercise. Actually, they've had less, less cardio, but more ability and options to actually do what they want to do. So I think part of it is that they finally have choice but they're also being allowed to fulfill their own needs in terms of what they want and need to smell. And we're not making them rush away from something that they've identified as being really important. And it's been, it's been pivotal for so many of my clients, just thanks to that one tidbit that you offered. It's just, Mm. it's quite profound.
1: Uh, That's great. It's so neat to hear. It's a mental exercise, right? I mean, we need more than just cardio in our lives. We need Social others talking to people. We need to read something new or watch something new, and they need that stimulation. It's just like a natural enrichment. Zoos had this figured out with their captive animals, right? They're like, oh, that we need to put in some enrichments. It's not enough just to have, you know, a, a big a space. You know, there has to be something going on, and this is an enrichment for dogs. And if you'll allow me to tell you a little bit about a study I'm just writing up, we did it a year ago, and we just finished writing up the analysis, it's I was looking at the effect of playing nose work games, you know, these like find a games. some people do it competitively, but you can just do it by putting treats in boxes or hiding, you know, it's like a, a treasure hunt with smells um, for dogs. I was looking at the effect of practicing that for two weeks on dogs levels of reactivity to other dogs. So being like super excited and maybe aggressive to other dogs and levels of anxiety. And we saw levels of reactivity and anxiety go down. After two weeks of practicing nose work, which is super fun and actually does reproduce what I had seen in nose work classes where dogs who were just highly charged and barking at other dogs or dogs who were really anxious and, and kind of unable to make a move without their owner saying, yeah, you can do it. After a number of weeks, we're just really confident, like doggy dogs who could interact with other dogs and sort of had a purpose right like had something they could do they were allowed to do and in nose work owners don't lead them around the dog is deciding they're exploring they're discovering through smell and i so i feel like i'm a great advocate of doing that type of sport for fun or competition if you want as well but and i think it'll also have similar effects to what you're talking about seeing
0: I mean, right now, there couldn't be a better time for that. Everybody's stuck at home, right? There's, you know, uh, Dr. Becker and I, I remember we brought on a couple of virologists and, and we were, you know, just looking at the landscape of what things look like right now. Dog attacks were up when people were going to park because, of course, that energy that's traveling down the leash. And then in other parts of the world, people can't leave their homes right now. I know, like, in France, there was a lockdown on, on walking your dogs. Your dogs had to stay in the house. This is really awesome. If somebody at home wants to just, you know, Do a quick rendition of this so they can't get out, but they want to do nose work. As you said, your study showed that it lowered aggression. How would they go about doing it? I know you got a new puppy, right? Tell me about the puppy and how you would do it with the puppy.
1: So she's 17 weeks, probably a little a little young and disorganized to do that, although there are lots of other things you can do with puppies at home. But I mean, for your adult dogs who are a little restless and also just not sure what's happening and can't get out and socialize with other dogs, this is, nose work is is at its core just a finding game. So it's about taking, in in the traditional nose work setting, you take boxes and you put a treat in the box and you sort of scatter them around the room and you ask the dog to find it and first they don't know what you're talking about. You know, but if you kind of, don't do anything and maybe just move a little bit to the side but don't indicate to them they will eventually find it and then you reward them with a bunch of other little treats little tiny treats the tiniest little treats ever so they don't have to be a lot of food they can smell it and then you do it again and you move the boxes spread them out a little bit more and they'll pretty quickly after a number of rounds of this start to get there's a game look for things in boxes then you start to put boxes on higher surfaces like a chair you know, or on a st- on your stairs, or around the corner where they can't see them right away, and they start to learn to explore by scent. And by the way, this doesn't mean they're always smelling for the thing in the box, you know? When the game's on, it's on, and when it's off, they stop. They pretty much stop. Eventually, you could graduate from not using boxes, And eventually in nose work, they graduate from using treats to just using an odor. The first odor they start with is anise smell. So if you have a little bit of an essential oil, that's something that dogs don't normally eat. You could put that on a little cotton ball and put it somewhere. And when the dog finds it, the new smell in the area, you give them a reward. And then they're looking for just the smell. They're not hunting for little liver treats all over your house. So you you start really small with a treasure hunt for your dog. First, you have to teach them that this is what's happening because they don't understand that concept of a treasure hunt. And they probably don't understand that they're allowed to smell around for things in the house. And then you let them do it and, and sort of expand their world in which they can explore. And if you have a backyard, you could do it in your backyard. I think it's really fun. And there are lots of great little videos on um, that people can look up on YouTube of people doing nose work. Usually it's more advanced. It won't be the first few stages, but it's really engaging. And there's... I have not met a dog who rejects this game. (laughs) Instead, they seem to enjoy it. And it does look like it's going to have a really positive effect on dogs who are having some behavioral issues.
2: The thing I love about nose work is it's perfect for those reactive dogs who can't be around anything except maybe one human. It's still a game that that they can participate. And I think when I've watched really aggressive dogs begin nose work you almost see a shift where they go from their, you know, they're wound up kind of sympathetic on guard to, oh, we're, we're going to play. And you can see them shift to more of a relaxed, parasympathetic. Okay, I can do this. It it gets them almost beyond themselves enough. But it's also, I think, the most magical thing for animals that are fearful or, you know, dogs that are just coming out of the shelter that are maybe shut down. It's such a great way to engage all dogs. It's one of my favorite things for senior dogs or blind dogs because their nose still works beautifully. So the neatest thing about nose work is it can be modified for almost, I don't have a situation yet that it can't be modified for. So it works for all dogs, which I think is like magnificent. It's like a universal game. One game that you can play with them that allows them to utilize all of their amazing sensory input in a way that also gives them some choice so it's like all the perfect package in one i totally agree i love the way i love the way you talk about it i think that's all
1: exactly right and by the way there's a sort of secondary incidental effect on the owners on the people who live with the dogs on the pet parents which is they enjoy seeing their dogs succeed at something right it's this thing they can do. They have this innate ability and we kind of haven't been playing with that or exploring it. And it's a lot of fun to watch your dog, like take on this new project with gusto and be successful, right. And be happy. So I think we get some feedback from that and, and it makes me feel happy to watch a dog perform and nose work. Yeah.
2: Rodney was talking a little bit right before you, you started the podcast about your post that you did that created quite a conflict, Rodney. Why don't you kind of explain your post? I remember
0: and- I remember Dr. Horowitz reading your articles in the Globe and Mail here in Canada, and it had to do with the term pet owner versus dog companion, uh, people call themselves guardians, and these labels that people like myself use all of us animal lovers all around the world. I know every single time I want to, if I really want to get engagement, really create a conversation. The first thing that I'll do is I'll look at somebody and say, hey, man, are you a, a pet parent or are you a pet owner? And let me tell you, <laughs> it is, it'll either go really good or it goes really bad. But can you just tell us, first of all, for those people that haven't read the article, we'll link the article in the description. But can you tell us where the, you know, where the inspiration came from writing that article and what's your take on these labels that we use today?
1: I mean, you're so right. People have very strong opinions about this. And I got interested in the topic of ownership, because of course, over the years, I'd stopped using the word owner myself. It didn't seem exactly right. I'd heard people using guardian, people use parent all the time. And I, I was interested in that. But I was suddenly very interested in the fact that ownership is legally apt, right? It's the right term to describe our legal relationship with domestic animals. As humans, we have rights, and we're allowed to own things. And then the rest of the world, everything else that's not human in the world is potentially property, and so ownable by humans. And so I found that fascinating, and especially so when we think about the dog human relationship in the 21st century, where most people are not adding an owned object to their home when they adopt or buy a dog, they're adding a family member. And so even, and so this term kind of was sticking around while society was evolving in this other way. So I got really interested in thinking about the legal structure of our relationship to animals. And that includes just even the words we use to talk about them.
2: You had to have quite an array of responses to yeah what was the feedback that you received because this is a very common topic in in our world as well but it's not without a lot of emotion sometimes debate but oftentimes just very strong very strong opinions what feedback did you receive
1: i mean i think about 90 percent of the people who i heard from in person or who responded to that piece or also to my book because it's a version of a chapter in my in my last book agreed with me, said, you know, it's it makes no sense that we have a legal ownership relationship, that that defines our relationship with our dogs. They are my family members. I, you know, whether we call them, you know, our children or us, their parents, yeah, that's a matter of preference. People have their ideas, but they all agree this idea of owning dogs doesn't jibe with the reality on the ground, which is how we feel about them, Right. And then there are 10% of the people who are like, they, I own them, right? I can do with, with them what I want. And in some ways, I feel like that does represent a little bit of our current society in North America, where we, I mean, it's mostly pro-family member, dog is family member, but there are still people who keep the dogs in their backyard chained up. And those are people who feel like their dogs are property, and they don't have any special rights or sort of privileges within the family.
0: I remember years ago, I would write an article. Are you a pet parent? Or are you a pet owner? And it's really interesting when you get takes from different perspectives of people. In the in the pet owner category, because there was a lot of people that were very adamant about calling themselves pet owners. I like you. I don't call myself a pet owner. I actually, I call myself a pet parent. For me, the reason why I use the term pet parent is because I feel like I love my dogs more than anything on this. Like Even when I say it, I get that that lump in my throat just when I just think about my dogs. Like anytime you watch any of my lectures, if I go on stage, and Dr. Becker will tell you, the second I see an image of one of my dogs, it's like, uh, and I choke up like instantly because I I don't even think there's a word for how much I love them. So of course, I feel like that term pet parent is way more endearing because I feel like, you know, that bond that I have with my dog. But then there's that other group that will tell you, I will never call myself a pet parent Rod I'm a pet owner. I'm an owner because these are my dogs and nobody can come take my dogs away from me. I would have people coming up saying, "Well, the the government could come up with 500 experimental like vaccines or or tests or like pesticides and they force us to have to do it on our dogs if dogs are their own beings." So I re- I want to be an owner so I can protect them. It's a very interesting philosophy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I've seen that. It has to do with feeling like your freedom to do with your own self and the things that are attached to you what you want and also suspicion of the government, right? Suspicion that they're going to swoop in and tell you that you're doing it wrong. I take it from a different perspective. I mean, I don't know if I even do call myself a pet parent. I was wondering, I call myself my dog's person, basically, like they're sort of my dogs and I'm their person. So I feel like it's a mutual relationship. And it that does kind of express how I feel, which is that the dog deserves their welfare, their point of view, their perspective deserves prioritizing, right, deserves to be foregrounded. And if they're just property, if they're just owned, it never will be, you know, they might as well not be living creatures. And so from that perspective, you have to let the dog be something else other than an owned object. You know, it's just, they're living creatures, and they deserve welfare, they deserve well being.
2: So that's where I come out on it. I use the term pet parent, but that isn't yet quite right for me. So I guess I'm still up in the air. I like I like what you are doing, Alexandra, in that calling yourself your dog, you know, you're you're their human and I like that, their human companion. But describing that relationship together, it's it's difficult because I, I guess I'm still awaiting for the perfect term. Rodney, you go by pet parent?
0: Like one hundred percent, I still call myself a pet parent. In fact, if I do it, like I tally, like right now, I'm sure in the comment section, it's it's just blowing up with people labeling themselves pet parent. Hands down, is always like way up on the top then it's usually like pet guardian pet guardians a pretty big one that i, I find a lot of people you'll get the occasional like pet owners and then those debates like the like these words how dare you call yourself a pet owner you should be a pet parent it's 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 just labeling man it's just it's <laughs> you know the the, the pet world is very visceral and so in that turn that you know, that those labels uh, don't go very well with people i can we're, that.
2: we're trying to work this out for the book right now in terms of so when i write articles i rotate a third a third a third and so i I say pet owners a third through the article and then I'll throw in a guardian, I'll throw in a pet parent because I'm gonna equally agitate everyone on the same level, <laughs> but yet try and try and show people I'm trying to appease everyone, but it's really hard to satisfy everyone. And we're trying to work this out with a forever dog. What do we what do we call our people? Because they all identify with a different a different label. And so it's this is a tough one.
1: I think that's fascinating too. And I know that in my scientific writing, I use owner. Because it does define the legal, current legal relationship. I'm not trying to move the bar with that. I'm just trying to be descriptive. But it doesn't feel exactly right for me. I mean, if if there are ways I can get around it, I'll get around it. More recently, when I write pieces for popular press, like the Times or, you know, the New Yorker or something, I've been able to push through that dogs are, call them who, instead of that or which which is what the style is. So you might say like a dog who wants to go outside. I mean, that's a natural turn of phrase for me because they're like an individual who wants to go outside, but not by the style guides. It's all dogs that, dogs which, just like your car, you know, it's a that or a which. And I'm like, I just can't, can't, I'm can not going to write the piece if they can't be a who. And so I have pushed that through a number of times, but I think you'll come across the same thing. There'll be a style guide for the, For the publishing house, which will just say, yeah, these aren't who's. And of course, of course they are. So I think it's, it's ongoing. And I like to bring out that tension. I just like to say in my paper, I'm calling them owner because that's their legal relationship. But this is what I do. And I'm going to say who, because that's how I think of them. But this is what the publishing company wants me to do. And just foregrounding it is, I think, my best way of managing it now.
2: I like that that's a good that's a good neutral approach. We we will who it from now on as well. That's a very good tip. <laughs> yes, yes, get it in there.
0: So Dr. Horowitz, how does a new puppy get into your home during during these times? Should I try Tell to us? bring
1: her? Should I try to get her here? Yes. yes. Oh here we go. Quiddity. Oh she's sleeping so I'm I'm waking her oh, up. Oh man There she is. There's the puppy. She's she, she. What's her name? Her name is Quiddity or Quid or Q or Squid or Squirmer or whatever, but Quiddity is her official name. She's like a she's a mix. She's a cattle dog, Schnauzer, and many other things mix. She's very scruffy. I'm gonna let so her go does back. This ha- to,
0: how does this happen? How 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 does Q make it into your house? <laughs>
1: yeah. She. Well, I had been looking um, to adopt a puppy. Actually, we, our two other dogs are 11 and 12. And I was interested in, Oh, I was looking to the fact that they're not going to live forever, right? And sort of bridging older and young dogs. In the past, when I've lived with dogs, I thought I waited too long to get a younger dog to join our family. And so I'd been thinking about it. And I also wanted to write about the first year of development of a dog's life. Because I find it interesting that all my dogs who have been adopted from shelters, I didn't meet until many months into their life, in some cases, years into their life. And there's always this mystique about, like, what happened? Oh, this must have been some trauma in the first couple of weeks. Who knows, right? And we create stories. And that's what we do. We're humans. We're storytellers. That's fine. But I wanted to see, what if I met a dog along the way the whole time and then watched her through the first year so that's and sort of comparing it to human development so i had been watching a litter that i from the time of the puppy's birth this was a litter of 11 pups and i'd been watching them the woman who fostered them let me come by once or twice a week for several weeks and it was really magnificent to see them all grow and i i mean it's it was just stunning and see the mother as well which I just had not experienced. And it's harder to experience with a mixed breed dog, right? Because they're not being bred. So you don't know when there's going to be a dog who's pregnant. Most mixed breeds come from shelters now. If we live with them, if we own them and they're neutered or spayed, so they're not having another litter. So it was hard to find a mixed litter. And so I, I'd been following them. And then suddenly this all happened to the world. And I realized I'm going to have to stop visiting this woman and maybe one of these is my puppy, it's going to be this litter here, not these other ones that I was watching. And, and so it was so we brought her, we brought her home at, at about 10 weeks. And now I've lived with her for seven weeks. It's been an
2: experience. <laughs> it's been well, she's been well observed. <laughs> I, I bet she has. And so how are you addressing socialization? That's probably everyone's biggest question is, Oh, my gosh, I have a puppy and I can't I can't expose them to all this amazing variety of life that we would like them to appropriately. How are you dealing with that aspect with with the epidemic? It It
1: was fascinating because she was well socialized up to 10 weeks. Uh, She was living with a number of other dogs, with some birds. A lot of people were coming by. And so I knew she was doing well. About two weeks into living with us, which is a household of three people and two other dogs and a cat. I thought, oh, there's a, a lot of animals around, so that's good. She, I realized she started to be a little bit reactive to new people or dogs because we weren't allowed to come close to them. If we were on our walk, you know, we're all 10 feet apart from each other. So she starts barking. And I thought, oh, and so we're going to have to do something about this. So we started being creative. The first thing we did was started, like, changing ourselves. So take pulling out the bike or the scooter that we never use and suddenly biking or scooting by the house so that she's and confronted with the type of thing she's going to see in the world. My son dressed up with a long robe with a hood and went into the forest and like came out slowly, so she could like experience like a strange person coming out of coming out from nowhere. Right? We expo- we wore hats. You know, we put on different clothes. We we tried to make ourselves different. And then when we could, we put on our masks and we started going to the small cities around where we live, little towns, really, and exposing her gently to here's a sidewalk, here's a car idling nearby. Here's oh Somebody's opening, and closing that door really loudly. Oh, people are coming down the street. And of course, I, my strategy was with her at this point is plying her with treats. So she knows every time there's something new, You know, look to me because I have a little reward, a little peanut butter treat in my hand and it works. It just works. You just have to keep doing it. So make yourself, you know, create all the situations. If you have a puppy at home and you're worried about this, you should be. Now's the time you have to do something about it. Create unusual situations, all the types of things that your puppy's gonna experience when normal life comes back and teach her that when these weird things happen and she's uncertain, The first thing she wants to do is look at you now she started showing me things that make her uncertain when i don't even notice them because i can see her doing that she's looking back at me and i think oh there's something what oh yeah there's like a i didn't see that deer in the distance she's turning to me and telling me like that's something i noticed and i'm worried about it and it's my job to kind of be attuned to her perceptions that way so it's, 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 you have to, it's work, but it's really engaging. It's really engaging way to think about the dog's world as well,
2: which, I mean, what better way to
1: start a relationship with a puppy?
2: When you look at dogs, and I, I would assume that you're probably seeing what I am seeing, generally speaking, that in North America, we're seeing a lot of dogs that, that have anxiety, that have what veterinarians would call maybe behavior problems. We're seeing a lot of dogs show up at shelters because of behavior problems. What's your belief in terms of humans primarily not having the resources and the tools available to early on when they needed to potentially socialize in a different way or create experiences in a different way that would allow the dog or give the dog the appropriate social skills necessary to choose different behaviors? None of those steps occurred. So by default, it's it's a human created problem that these dogs have all of these behavior issues and that's kind of an elephant in the room that no one wants to talk
1: about yeah i think that's so fascinating and the very phrase misbehavior a dog's misbehavior is i think where it begins that bespeaks of a lot it bespeaks of a human idea that there's a way a dog should be and a dog's inability to be that way. And so where does that come from? Well, it could just all come from the dog, right? They're a horrible dog. That's the way we kind of tend to default. It could come from us not understanding dogs, right? Not understanding the needs of dogs, how to incorporate them into our households, how to give them resources to deal with the things we put on them, like being left alone, suddenly being put in a big group of dogs, going on a car trip, all the things that to us are just natural it's funny because they're so flexible and so adaptive and just able to live with us that we forget that all these things are human things and dogs don't know about them to begin with and they have to be introduced to them and they're not going to understand them right away you know it's a long process so i i mean it's hard i don't know if i've ever seen misbehavior i've seen behavior that's the result of the wrong expectations by the person based on the equipment that the dog has been given to do what the owner wants. Yeah. Well, said. well
0: said. Are you doing anything uh, new, Dr. Horowitz, or is there, I shouldn't say by new, but are you doing anything fascinating over your dog lab that's either about to come out or something early or anything like that? like
1: that? Well, I should say, I mean, it's it's sort of, it's too late to promote this, but we just did do two online studies. So when this all happened, we pivoted and created two online studies and... Had a couple hundred people participate in these one was about a dog's sense of their own size when going through an opening whether they make adjustments for the narrowing of an opening and the other one was about choice it was asking owners to give their dogs seven choices in seven days so seven new choices in seven days and record the owners recorded for us all the choices that the dog made and that was about food it was about height of eating food it was about warm water and ice water it was about direction you go on a on a normal walking route it was things like this and now we have a couple hundred responses that we have to start looking at so i don't know what we have yet but i know that the feedback was that owners loved doing this they loved 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 just being given the opportunity to think about a choice and then observing their dog and in a way, I kind of, you know, that's as interesting to me as whatever result we get. Did dogs prefer the new toy or the old toy? Well, what I'm interested in is the, the person is looking, is giving the dog a choice and looking at what the dog does. That's cool. So that's what we're doing now. You know, if we can't go back to the lab soon and I'm not sure if we'll be able to, we'll develop some more online studies and they're really all about engagement with your dog. So that will all be posted on our website dogcognition.com. So uh, anybody who's interested can sign up to hear
2: about those studies. I bet that you will have dogs that prefer warm water and dogs that prefer room temperature and then cool and some dogs want ice water. And I'm really excited to see the results of that study, particularly with the food choices, because I think you'll have some interesting perspectives to report on. So I'll anxiously await those results. Terrific.
0: Well, I can tell you, I can tell you, you know, I've always thought I gave my dogs enough choices. But after sitting with you, after like, you know, just binge watching your your lectures and your talks, I feel like now I'm more in tune to even maybe things that I didn't think about now, where it's like, I want to give my dogs all choices. Like just a, a silly example, like when we go down to the dog park, do you want to go this way? Or do you want to go this way? You pick, right? What do you want to eat today? Do you want to eat duck or do you want to eat chicken you pick like i will literally put down like multiple things you know to do the best that i can to make you know to give my dog choices i'm sure a lot of people it hasn't dawned on them but maybe after hearing this i'm like man i don't think i give my dogs enough choices either
2: in one way i think all of us i certainly am guilty of creating what i think is a perfect environment you know it's comfy they have the best organic dog beds they eat the best organic free range meals, I've got air purification, they're in a chemical free home, I am looking at providing for them what I think would be a beautiful environment to thrive in. But that's my, that's my perspective. And, and you have done just a magnificent job, I think, of, of helping people to really think about the fact that you can provide this amazing environment, but it may not be meeting your dog's emotional needs, it may be meeting physical needs, but it's not nourishing them in a way that is going to make them be the best version of themselves or help them become the dog that they're potentially capable of. And I love that, that that really is your heart mission is looking at what can we be doing from a dog's perspective to provide better choices and more options so that not just we can be better guardians, but that our dogs have a more fulfilled life. I think we owe it to them. You know, look at what they
1: do for us. I know in my case, it's a, it's a ton. It's a ton. So I absolutely agree. It's, and I'm really, I love every time I talk to you both, I come up with new ideas and new ways of thinking about it too. So thank you both for everything you're doing.
0: Dr. Alexandra Horowitz, everybody who's out there, who's been tuning in, hopefully, whether you're a pet parent, whether you're a pet owner or pet guardian, pet lovers. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you guys again.